Welcome to Day Beautiful. I'm Adam Vitkavage, and this is a podcast where you can discover debut authors. If you like what you hear here, check us out on the web at daybeautiful.net and on all social media at Day Beautiful. Today's guest received an MFA from the University of Montana and co-founded the nonprofit Freeverse. She coordinates literary arts writers and schools program and lives in Portland, Oregon with her wife. Her debut novel, Body Grammar, is out now via Vintage. I'm of course talking about Jules Omen. Hey Jules, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty well. Yeah, I'm good. How are you? I'm doing super duper. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Um, In addition to Day Beautiful, I uh, am the director of events at Tattered Cover Bookstore in Denver. And I think I actually got your book via the bookstore as opposed to like the publicity hustle, which is always interesting, like where I find the book. Cool. But I loved it for sure. Um, And it's called Body Grammar. And I'd love for you to tell readers what it's all about. Yeah, totally. Um, Yeah, so body grammar is, it's really like a queer coming of age, but also kind of an artistic coming of age. Mm -hmm. Um, The protagonist, Lou, um, is a kind of like shy and self-conscious and kind of awkward teenager who's like about to be an adult and try to figure out like what that means in terms of like making her own art, um, what she desires, who she desires, who Mm -hmm. she is. Um, And in entering, um, she ends up going into um, the international modeling industry. She was scouted a lot as a teenager. And then after witnessing a kind of traumatic event, decides to just kind of go for it and reroute um, and enters the fashion industry, um, which is just kind of a whole new world for her. Um, And it's also kind of a love story um, Mm -hmm. and kind of follows her coming into finding queer community, um, finding her own path and um, figuring herself out, which it's always kind of a stop-start process, so yeah, mm-hmm, definitely. I um, I love that it's a queer coming of age, and I and I want to dive into that and like the idea of books like this didn't necessarily exist a lot. Like I feel like we're in a similar age bracket. Totally, definitely didn't see queer coming of age when I was younger, even when I was in college, like when I was in my undergrad. Um, I want to start with: Did you want to write specifically a coming of age? for queerness or did that kind of just fall into place after like you started writing the novel yeah it's interesting I actually started writing this as like a family drama Mm. um I started writing it in grad school like almost it was like eight or nine years ago um Mm. was the beginning of it and um and then ultimately like after many drafts of that Lou's story kind of took over um and while I was writing the book I came out and Mm -hmm. um and was kind of coming to terms with my own just like journey into you know figuring myself out and what my identity was and all of that stuff. Um, and so Lou's journey kind of evolved as mine did like very much. Um, and like you said, yeah, there weren't, I mean, I couldn't even tell you like a queer coming of age novel yeah. that existed when I was a teenager. And I'm like, and that wasn't that long ago, yeah. you know, yeah. it was like decades ago. Um, and it's wild because now there are a ton and I read a lot of queer YA yeah. because that just didn't really exist um, when I was a teenager. And it's like, cool. So I get to see that genre um just expand like and explode so much just even the last five years it feels like it's dramatically grown so it's cool yeah and as you were like you know coming out figuring yourself out still I mean we're all still figuring ourselves out every uh, still every day (laughs) yeah um you mentioned how like uh Lou grew with you um were there like specific scenes or feelings that were really inspired by your life or by friends' lives, like that made their way into the story? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Not like necessarily just like in plot or, you know, like literalness, but I think um, 
yeah, just that feeling of not being able to name something or knowing what you are or who you want or any of that stuff. I think like I had a really like, um, it just came and stops and starts. And for me, like, I think coming into my own, um, personhood, I just, I felt like it was very, like, I didn't even know because I, there weren't like queer role models or like, I didn't know queer adults growing up until actually I was, I modeled when I was a teenager and the fashion industry was the first place that I really like was around queer adults, which I didn't even realize until much later, like in my mid twenties, I was like, Oh, that's so interesting. That was like, actually like, there were just a lot of like artistic, creative, queer people working on these fashion shoots that I was on. Um, None of the models were out that I knew of anyway. Um, And I wasn't out in high school for sure. But I think Um, getting to be around that community and like seeing people feel so confident and like creative in their identity was like very was just kind of an interesting foundation even if I wasn't aware of it at the time yeah for sure I um I remember I was talking to an author Joseph Casera who wrote the house of impossible beauties and we were just talking about like the first time we like saw like um drag queens or whatever and we're just talking about like our connection with like the brady bunch movie with rupaul playing the (laughs) guidance counselor totally and it's like i think in the 90s um early 2000s like queerness was played off as a joke almost yeah and a lot of mainstream media it's like oh we're edgy we're including queerness but not really you know yeah um yeah, so I, even like speaking of the modeling industry i've been re-watching america's sex top model a lot during the pandemic yeah Um, and it's so interesting to see like how they treat queerness and, and especially trans, like the trans jokes are insane. Yeah. Like it's like, so I, I'm just get, going to say like, yes, I couldn't imagine people being out in the modeling world. And then back then, like, you know, and I say back then, like five, 10 years ago, yeah, you know, like not long ago, even. Totally. Um, yeah. And the book in some way is like a fantasy of what I don't know. Like, I'm not obviously in the fashion mm-hmm. industry now, but um, I think like, I know that things have changed a lot dramatically, just even in my daily life, for sure, in terms of like how people talk about queerness or, I mean, I live in Portland, Oregon, and mm-hmm. it's a very like queer city. And I grew up here and it, where I grew up in Portland, it was not, there was maybe one of my friends was out in high school and they were maybe one of the only people in a yeah. high school of 2000 kids um, in a, one of the more liberal cities in America. Mm-hmm in the aughts you know and it wasn't like um it's just like really been kind of wild to watch that shift happen and I think I've been really fascinated by queer writers who are kind of writing I I listened to the episode with Brian um, Washington um on on this podcast and um and he's someone who like is writing these stories that I think like yeah didn't exist when I was a teenager but like writing about queer adolescence and like what that experience really is like as an adult um, it's like nice to be reminded that it's like, well, I didn't come out back then because it, it wasn't like how it feels right now. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just, I couldn't figure it out. It was like, no, the culture, like you said, like the depictions of queerness in movies and in, in, in on, te- on television, like if you rewatch like friends or yeah. any like oh. mainstream show, it's like horrifying, you know? Yeah. And I think, um, and that's just even, you know, growing up with relatively like liberal parents, like, I think that it, it, it just didn't, people didn't, weren't talking about it. You didn't mm-hmm. think about it. You know, no, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, it, it is so interesting to me to like, look back at, and I think I've talked about this on the podcast before. And I talked to my friend about it because I talk about it on the podcast. Um, I had a, like a really great friend in high school and, and years later I bumped into him in like 
the mall or somewhere and he was just like he was with his boyfriend now husband and was just like I just I didn't know if I could come out to you and I was like that's so wild to me. that's so wild to me because like of you know just like our friend group and how I felt like we were a safe haven yeah for him and again it's not my choice to have when people come out to me but that was in so I graduated high school in 2007 so yeah just to give like a time frame um so you were a model in high school because I was going to ask how the modeling part fell into body grammar was that when you were writing the family drama was that part of the story always did that come into play like when it became Lou's story yeah, it wasn't always in the novel at all. And then I actually ended up, I was in a nonfiction workshop in graduate school and I ended up writing about that experience of being, I wasn't, I did not do the Lou trajectory at all. Mm-hmm. Like I I modeled, I was signed with a New York agency when I was a teenager and I did like a little bit of modeling in New York and I did a summer in Singapore when I was in high school. Um, but I never walked the runway. Like I, I ended up going to college instead of that. Sure. I was like, oh, I really want to be a writer. I want to like go study writing mm-hmm. instead of going a more like, I don't know, just a different route. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry. Can you repeat your question again? I lost myself there. No worries. How did the modeling end up being part of the story? Because oh, yeah, it totally. was a family drama that became Lou's story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I started, I wrote this essay about it um, in grad school and I did this reading and, you know, one of my professors was basically like, it just feels like that would be such a natural fit to write about that world because you have experience in it to like give this character some kind of like forward momentum um and because you know there's definitely I think Lou the character became more like me over time just because I was trying to write into that experience of really what it felt like to be a queer teenager who like is uh I was like a very shy very like book nerd teenager and it was really weird to be in that environment where a lot of people were really excited to be there and I was like wow this is super bizarre and I like want to write about it like even then but um and so I think I wanted to put when I ended up putting Lou in that world it was just an interesting tension of like you're really just so it was the first time in my life I felt people were really looking at me in this way that was really jarring and I had never I didn't want anyone to see me as a queer as like a weird kind of like genderqueer teenager, I was just like, don't look at me. I feel out of place. I don't know who I am. And then when you're modeling, it's like literally like people are taking photographs of you. And I think that that tension felt really interesting to me and I wanted to kind of explore it further. Um, And so it did end up in the family drama, but then when um, I ended up rewriting this book a few years ago um, to just be Lou's story primarily, um, it really was the world that I was interested in exploring more from there. Mm -hmm. So. You mentioned just then you went back and like rewrote it to make it loose story. Was there like, what's the timeline on this? Did you write it and then take years off from even thinking about it? No, it was like constant. So it was like, it was like, um, so I finished a draft of it after grad school in 2015. Um, Mm -hmm. and then I sent it out to agents. I got an agent and then he and I worked on it for two or three years. And I was, you know, like really just trying to pull all of those threads together. It was like four points of view in this family. And um, it ended up getting sent out a couple of years in a row and like turned down by editors. Um, And then ultimately my current editor um, in this, I guess like spring of spring of 20, spring of 2020. Is that right? I think so. It makes no sense. I don't even know. I I blocked the, I think it was, I think it was the spring of 2020 or like maybe that like right before the pandemic. Wow. I can't even remember. Anyway, um, she was like, 
she turned it down, um, that version, the family drama version, but then, um, it was a really nice rejection, which I think writers are, you know, it's like, what's the scale. And it was like about as nice a rejection as you could get. (laughs) And my agent was like, it sounds like you really like loved this and connected with it in a way that like, you know, other people had, but it had never quite gone all the way. Um, and do you mind if like Jules rewrites it and then like resubmits to you kind of on spec? And she and I talked on the phone and she was super open to that. So I rewrote it, not knowing whether she would buy it or not. Like as Mm -hmm. her feedback was basically like, I think you're trying to write two novels in one novel. And this one seems to be trying to kind of eat the other one, you know, and that was lose. And so I was like, yeah, I'll just see. I think at that point I'd been working on her as a character for a really, I mean, like probably six or seven years. And so it was actually pretty easy once I was kind of in that world to write a whole arc of her because I had spent so much time with her at that point so sure what does that look like taking you know I guess like the two novels in one and really just like deconstructing it to just be about Lou what did that look like for you it was it was interesting because it was really like grief filled at the beginning because I was had worked for so long Mm -hmm. on this family drama and I was like really um felt like it had, yeah, it had just, it had been so much work. And I was kind of like, wow, I'm really just going to, but I had grieved it too. I was like, I guess this just isn't going to live in the world right now. I'm going to work on my next thing and I'm going to move forward. Um, but that was really difficult. It was just like hard to kind of wrap my head around it. Um, and so then when I got this other chance to like keep writing Lou, it was like, actually like felt really freeing. Cause I was like, wow, I can like save her, you know, I can like use this work, um, and move forward with it. So I really like, I just cut all the other points of view. I ended up with about 30,000 words of just her point of view. And then from there, I was like, okay, what do I want to keep? And the section of the waterfall, that was always in the original novel. Mm-hmm. Um, her relationship with Ivy has been in the book since the beginning. Um, some of the characters who are in it, like Harrison has been in the book for a really long time, but a lot of the other modeling characters that she meets didn't exist. And so I got to really just like write into that world um, pretty much from scratch. So yeah. I had like, a character and it felt very easy to put her in scenes and see kind of what happened to her. And that for me is the hardest part. Cause I love character driven, like complex, mm-hmm. like narratives. And, um, and so just to be able to put her like, yeah, put her on a runway actually in the book, like what happens, that was fun. Um, yeah. but it was also kind of wild. So, so that all kind of unfolded in the past two years, like the rewrite and everything. I really rewrote it like in the summer of 2020. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And then submitted it like the fall. Yeah. Back to that same editor. Yeah. And then she bought it. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. No, that's not that. See, I I like to get stories like that, especially because I've gotten like emails from, you know, people who don't have agents or whatever. And they're like, I was just like, just listen. There's so many stories like this. It's not just like, I think a lot of younger people, especially, especially now that I work in a bookstore and I talk to a lot of like people trying to get events and whatnot. Right. Um, and they're just like, they wrote one book and just like, okay, this is going to be, this is going to be. And I was like, maybe not. Like it does take, like you, you, might have to re, no. you might have to rewrite it. You might have to put it in a drawer and then really start over. Um, but anyway, so I just like, I always love to hear stories like that. Um, so then that kind of happened really fast, just from like a, the publishing business side of things. If you submitted in 2020, it's now like two years later. Yeah. Yeah, um, it, it did. Was there a lot of edits with your editor after the rewrite? um not not a lot actually like um definitely she had some really smart things about Mm -hmm. like pacing and how to kind of like bulk up some parts that were like you know it was really front loaded um and I think that it was really helpful to get her point of view on it and I had also been working with my agent as like um 
is amazing, but he's also like a, he's like a straight guy in his, um, fifties, sixties. And, and, and it was really cool to work with it on my editors about my age, I think. And, um, and has a lot of context for a lot of like the queer jokes I was telling and stuff like that, that I think before I was like, does anyone get these jokes? And then Anna, my editor was like, definitely got the jokes. And that was very reassuring to me. So, um, but yeah, fewer, I mean, after working on it with my agent for so many years or the other version, like I was expecting, I was expecting years, you know, cause that was yeah. how long it had taken the last time, but, um, but it turned out it was pretty close. So. That's terrific. I, I love to hear that. And in the midst of all this writing, rewriting, doing your graduate degree, you founded a nonprofit called Freeverse or the Freeverse Project. Um, I love to hear more about it because I, I didn't do too much research into it before talking to you. That way I just didn't, I just hear you tell me about it. Yeah, no, I love to talk about it. I think it's, they're doing incredible work now. And so yeah. it's just like really awesome to have seen it grown so much. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So when I was a graduate student, my, one of my good friends, um, Sarah Khan, who's now uh, a lawyer for the ACLU, she's mm-hmm. just like gone on, she was in my fiction program um, and just had like a lot of connections and um in like the social justice world. And also she had previously worked in juvenile detention centers in San Francisco. Um, And so she had a lot of experience um, with that and wanted to go into the juvenile hall in Missoula where we were in grad school um, to teach creative writing and just to kind of come in and like be another adult in this space that is like a pretty fucked up space to be totally honest, just in terms of like incarcerating kids, um, incarcerating anyone, but especially children. Um, and so she ended up, you know, really leading us through it, but with another friend of ours, um, we ended up going in really regularly for the whole time we were in grad school. And that just like, you know, once a week we would go into, there was like a school within the hall, um, and teach creative writing. We brought in some poets like Dina Smith came like Mm. um, when they were in town for, I think the Montana festival of the book um, and came in and did a workshop with the kids. And it was amazing. And we were like, wow, we just don't want this project to die when we leave Missoula. Cause we were all kind of inevitably going to go somewhere else. Um, And so Sarah, you know, figured out basically like how to write grants to get funded. Funding, um, mm-hmm. And we ended up writing a grant to the National Endowment for the Arts and get, got some funding and then ended up getting um, kind of like umbrellaed under the Missoula Writing Collaborative, um, which is a great literary nonprofit in Missoula. Um, and so now it is its own kind of functioning program, at least yeah. as I understand it, um, with an executive director and they have regular writing staff, we brought in, we ended up going and expanding into other halls in the state when we were still living there for a couple of years after grad school, Sarah and I were still living there and still um, really involved with trying to like get it up and running. Um, Now I think it's like, they're doing so much more than I could have imagined. We really just wanted to like have people continue to go in and teach weekly and volunteer because there's such a like, such a pipeline of like MFA students who are like already teaching creative writing in the MFA program and like are very excited about like, you know, working with teenagers and working with kids who like otherwise are not getting their voice heard. Um, and it just felt like a really great way to like, um, yeah, it's a way to sustain the program. So. Now that's amazing that it started just as like some grad students wanting to do it. And yeah, cause I'm, I was on their site earlier and like there's their staff now or whoever they list is like 12 plus people, which is yeah. just as someone who's worked in nonprofits before and stuff and has, you know, worked 
not in like juvenile detention centers, but worked with like, you know, the youth. It's great to see stuff like this existing. And I'm like, I would not have discovered if I wasn't interviewing you basically, you know? Yeah. It's amazing. And like Montana too, is like, Mm -hmm. it's, it's a, there's not a lot of funding for stuff like that there. And I think like, um, or wasn't when I was living there and, um, and I think that they've done so much and they partnered too with the beat within, which is a national program that I've worked with a little bit in Portland, um, here, but, um, but it really like launched, I started writing grants after that just professionally because we had written them for our own thing. And so it kind of gave me this career path too. That was like, just kind of an amazing opportunity. And Sarah just really, she really led the way, but we were like, yeah, we'll do it. Just, we just kept saying yes to her. And that was kind of where it led. So Oh, that's so terrific. Um, earlier, w- when we were talking about just like queerness in novels, um, I meant to ask this, so I want to ask now. Do you remember like the first time you like saw queerness in novel, like what in in novels or in media? Because we talked about how like it was kind of not really like you know an in joke or whatever. But do you remember like the first novels where you're like, oh, okay, I, I get it, I see myself here. Ah, it's such a good question. I feel like so many of them came so much later. Mm-hmm. I read, I read Bastard Out of Carolina as like a, um, like Dorothy Allison as a, um, as a kid. And there were a lot of books that later I didn't know, like Carson McCullers. There were novelists who I read sure. in high school, um, and I didn't know they were queer, or maybe they didn't call themselves queer, yeah. you know. But later it was kind of like, oh, like, um, I read the book Geek Love. I think it's behind me on my shelf. But um, and that book isn't necessarily queer but it felt very like um it felt kind of of that world and kind of I read like the world according to Garp was a Mm -hmm. book that I loved and there there is queerness in that book but it's complicated I think but yeah it was kind of like I was looking anywhere to find it and I didn't know what it was I was reading like David Sedaris and that was maybe one of the first books or like those my mom loved his essays and I read them when I was probably like 12 or 13 and I was like Oh, there's something here, but I didn't know nobody was really using the word queer like that in my, in my world anyway. So, yeah. Oh, for sure. Um, And I always like to wrap up. Yeah. David Sedaris. I'm just going to tell this story because it's been on my mind lately. I saw him in Phoenix two or I'm not like half a decade ago at this point. And do you know how he always, if if you've never been to a signing, he like personalizes every single book with a joke. And mine was like a week after Prince died and he wrote, Adam, why did you kill Prince? Oh I was like, and I just think that's the funniest thing. Like just accusing someone of murder, but you can get away with it because it's obviously a joke, but right. it's really funny to me. Um, that's my David Sedaris story. Have you been reading anything? What's on your mind? Like media wise, what have you been enjoying? Um, I just started reading The Candy House by Jennifer Egan and mm-hmm. I'm very excited about it because I loved Goon Squad so much and I'm working on um, like kind of linked story yeah. novel-esque thing um, and so that really like was a kick in the pants to be like oh like so good why even I don't know why even oh try God. you know <laughs> I, I don't know but it also makes me want to write because it's so good yeah. um, I'm what else am I reading? I just finished Sky Falling by Mia McKenzie and I loved that mm. book. I don't know if you've read that. No, um, I haven't checked it out yet. It's great. Um, it's very funny. And I feel like in the pandemic, I was reading a lot of like rom-coms because my anxiety was so high yeah. that I was like, I can't even read anything that is like going to raise my blood pressure at all. And so yeah. um, I'm really excited to read the new Casey McQuiston novel. I like yeah. love yeah. their work and I'm, I love queer YA and I'm like, I'm excited about that. So, yeah. 
Thank you so much to Jules for joining the Day Beautiful podcast to talk about her book, Body Grammar. Uh, you can follow her on the internet at JulesOman.com. That's O-H-M-A-N. She's also on Instagram at her first and last name, Jules Oman. As always, you can follow Day Beautiful at Day Beautiful on all social media and read more author interviews at DayBeautiful.net. Until next time, I'm Adam. This is Day Beautiful, and you're all beautiful. Beautiful.